0: Our scripture reading for today comes to us from Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 to 29. Children were brought to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. the young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? So Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away very sorrowful for he had great possessions Well, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. In this passage, we're going to explore the path of the disciple as we continue our study through Matthew's gospel. And in this path that Jesus lays out, In this portion of scripture, when I sort of walk through this passage and notice the flow begins with the requirement of the disciple. And then it moves on to the temptation of discipleship or or not following a discipleship. And then lastly, the trajectory of discipleship, the requirement, the temptation and the trajectory. Let's begin with the requirement. The requirement is childlike dependence. And it begins with this exchange with the disciples and Jesus and this child. Childlike dependence is this humbling posture that Jesus chooses to illustrate as the basis for entering his kingdom. And interestingly, the disciples are rebuked and the children are embraced. And it starts out that the disciples are the ones doing the rebuking. And it's important to gather from this exchange that what Jesus is after and the the purpose of the child being not that modern-day object lesson right there in that moment is they are a picture of this utter dependence. Children, uh, just to be clear, are not a picture of innocence. Sometimes that can be in the narrative, oh, the innocence of a child. But we know, because we were all children, that we weren't innocent. And for those of us who have children, we know that children are not innocent. None of us would describe a preschool playground as utopian heaven. Like, children are beautiful, and children's playgrounds are beautiful and cute but also horrifying and terrible places of swirling vortexes of selfishness. We know this. As parents, for those of well, all of your parents, my parents spent the first 5 years of our life trying to teach us that the world did not revolve around us. Those of you who have ch- young children now, we spend the first 5 years for sure, much longer of course, but the first 5 years being intentionally formative to Have those children know that the world does not revolve around them. And, and bad parenting is easy because, of course, this is, requires an ongoing commitment, an intentional commitment to put discipline into the life of our children so that they can become uh, you know, citizens of a, that are able to look outside themselves to the greater community. Otherwise, left to our own devices, we will fixate on ourselves. And bad parenting is easy because it's tiring to keep this commitment. And sometimes we can feel like, well, maybe they'll just grow out of it. No, we don't, we don't grow out of it. That's why we go to work with people who are selfish. They're grown adults, right? We, we, don't, we don't grow out of it. We just find different ways of demonstrating our selfishness, right? We'll say to little Timmy, Timmy, come on. Timmy, you gotta, you gotta let people, don't, don't butt in line, Timmy. But little Timmy doesn't grow out of that. He's on the highway and he's driving along in his vehicle. And he's like, me, mine first. This is where I am. Don't go in front of me. No. I'm first. You don't grow out of it. You know, like, come on, Janie. You got to share your toys, Janie. Okay, you got to share. Sharing is good. We could be, look, you have 25 toys. And, and little Lucy over there has no toys. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just give Lucy, no, my meritocracy, I earned these toys. Don't, we don't grow out of it. Hey, you've got a couple hundred million dollars. What do you think about paying, up, paying them taxes? I know you don't agree with everything the government's up to, but how about you help a little guy and pay them taxes? No. My toys. No. No. Cayman Islands. No. <laughs> we don't grow out of it. So, parents, you've got the Spirit of God. You've got the community. You've got support. Just keep your foot on the gas. Ride out that drift. And raise these children to love other, others. Others. Children are not innocent. Jesus says, listen, you've got to be like a child. You can, only, you can only come into my kingdom if you are like a child. And children, of course, at that time in history were loved, of course. But they weren't given the kind of dignity and value um, that, that probably intrinsically they, they deserve. Because at that point in the ancient world, you weren't really considered valuable until you were contributing to the community. So the disciples are like, look, don't bother the teacher. And so Jesus sees this, you know, they see it as an unwanted intrusion, but Jesus sees it as an irresistible opportunity to expose their pride. Because the other reason they don't want the children bugging the teacher is they're like, you're not going to understand anything that he says. So since you can't cognitively comprehend what he says, ergo, get to the back of the room. And so Jesus uses this as an opportunity to flip the script the disciples are shushing them away because the disciples are thinking, no, no, no. You've got to become like us. And then once you've become like us, able to sort of understand and receive, and we know they had difficulty with that, then you can be with Jesus. And Jesus flips the script. He says, actually, no, you've got to be like them. Children are utterly dependent, humble, you know, childlike dependence. That involves trust, right? Children are very trusting. This is why children are vulnerable, I remember when our kids were little, they would uh, jump off the steps into our arms, right? I remember one day, Isaiah, I think it was Isaiah, or maybe not. well, Nigel will correct me if I got this wrong, but was on the steps, and, and uh, I wasn't really paying attention, and he just jumped off the steps, and I kind of saw this flying child in my peripheral vision, and I like, quickly caught him, and in the mind of that child, the idea of his dad dropping him just wasn't in his frame of reference, Childlike trust. Of course, dad's going to catch me. And in order for us to enter into the kingdom, there's a childlike trust. It doesn't mean we check our brains at the door and we cease to be people of reason and, and intellect. It means that there is a humble posture of dependence. That our God is good. That he is wise. That his word will truly guide us into flourishing. Even the parts that we disagree with. Even the parts of his word that challenge our our appetites and our desires and our inclinations to trust him that childlike trust is to enter into the kingdom when jesus uses the word kingdom the kingdom is the domain of the king if there's a kingdom there's a king and if there's a king the king has a way it's all strongly political language there's a law there's laws the laws that govern our lives and the laws of the kingdom that govern our lives are for our flourishing so christian faith is not actually a life of like just ultimate you know knuckle-dragging restriction, it is actually the correct and proper restrictions that are wise and loving and good that lead our souls actually into true flourishing, true peace, true tranquility. This is found in being a disciple or a student, and that requirement is this childlike dependence and humility. I heard once, I think it was Esau Macaulay who once said, I read the Bible with a hermeneutic of trust. I come to these portions of Scripture that I'm not sure I understand, I don't really get it, or I'm grappling with some, you know, thing in the Old Testament where it just seems so incredibly offensive to my modern sensibilities, and I'm like, how could God be wise or good or loving, or how does this work? And I have to read it with a hermeneutic of trust. Again, it doesn't mean that we're simply checking our brains at the door. It means that in the childlike dependence is such that I don't stand over the Word of God with magisterial reason. I submit myself to the word of God with ministerial reason. How can the word of God teach me and guide me and lead me and liberate me? As opposed to I will stand over it with my modern 2023 lens. And I will filter the word of God through the most common narratives and ideologies of my present day. And my you know, geographical location. Childlike dependence. Let's move on from the requirement to the temptation. The requirement is childlike dependence. The temptation is ongoing independence. This is the hurdle to discipleship because we either reject God or in the case of the rich ruler, as we'll find out, we attempt to leverage God to give us what we truly worship. So the rich ruler found following a religious system Highly attractive, and interestingly, he found following a savior immediately unattractive. It's interesting that in verse twenty-one, the rich ruler he gives us uh, a spiritual self-diagnosis, and his diagnosis of himself is not even close. And in this act of love and patience. Recognizing this guy's got a whole lot of zeal and a whole lot of passion, but he's he's really truly misguided, even about his own self. That in an act of love and patience, Jesus turns up the heat in the conversation from doing good deeds, which is where he which is where the rich ruler starts. Hey, what good deeds do I have to do? Verse 16. Jesus turns it up from good deeds to being perfect, verse 21. Well, if you would be perfect, let's see what kind of a reaction we get to this. Jesus is, what is he trying to do? What is his what is his goal here? Let's, let's play this back in exegetical slow motion. Here we go. Verse 16, what good deeds do I have to do? And Jesus says, why are you asking me what is good? Right? God's already defined what is good in his law. So Jesus lists some of his laws. Notice Jesus doesn't list the first law, which is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. He just starts with some of these other, how you relate to your neighbor, laws. And Jesus wants this rich ruler to follow him. He he wants him to follow him. He says at the end of verse 21, follow me. That is the call to discipleship. That's what he said to Peter and Andrew and Philip and James and Thad and Judas and everybody. Follow me. So he says to the rich ruler, follow me. So Jesus loves this guy. Mark's gospel actually records it. I'm getting ahead of myself. But anyways. So what's Jesus up to here? Mark's gospel says that he, that, that he loved him. Jesus is trying to provoke dependence because he knows this guy is highly committed to independence and religious systems whereby he's sort of pulling all the strings and holding all the cards and sort of kind of in control by his rule keeping. In verse 20, the guy says to Jesus, well, I've kept all these laws. English is, well, I kept them. The Greek here is fulaso, and fulaso means it's a military term to keep something. It is a high Commitment of military like, uninterrupted observance. Like standing there on night watch and like your responsibility is to make sure nobody comes over the hill and just keep. So, what he says to Jesus is, I have a military like, uninterrupted, ongoing observance to these laws. That doesn't sound like childlike dependence, it sounds a lot like arrogant independence. But Jesus loves this guy. Like he loves all of us arrogant people that don't want to follow him, that want to be our own lords. That's all of us actually, starting with me. And he loves him. And he wants to provoke dependence so he knows that nobody keeps the law. Jesus knows nobody keeps the law. Nobody walks in God's ways as we ought to walk in God's ways, fully loving and caring and wise all the time. None of us do that. Psalm 14 says, there are none righteous, no, not one. And Paul in the book of Romans borrows from Psalm 14 to say, there are none righteous, no, not one. Nobody's keeping the law. Jesus knows this. So he wants to provoke, and he says in verse 21, well, I know this is a conversation about being good deeds. Good. Jesus says, if you would be perfect. So Jesus uses the word, it's recorded in the Greek as teleos. Well, if you would be teleos. Teleos is where we get the English word you know, teleology. The direction of something. The, the end goal. The full maturation of something. Jesus goes, you know, if you'd be perfect. If you'd come to the end of the state of complete maturity. Then give up everything and follow me. And of course, this is, he, what Jesus is touching at is that he's not keeping the first commandment. The problem isn't that he has nice things. You know, Jesus' ministry was funded by some very wealthy women who had, a lot of, who, who had means and had nice things. They're recorded at the end of the book of Acts and the end of Romans. There were, there were people of wealth that provided for Jesus' ministry. So the problem here is this guy seems to think he's keeping the law and he's not keeping the law and he does have a God that is above all gods and it's his wealth. And so Jesus pokes at this. And in verse 22, it says that this man went away sorrowful. And this is very telling of the condition of his heart. Because again, sorrowful doesn't, just doesn't mean he's not sad. Oh man, I got a lot of stuff. I don't want to part with my stuff. The, the, the word sorrowful in the Greek is lupeo, which means to be deeply vexed, deeply severely and severely in emotional pain. So that, that's pretty strong language about your stuff. Of deep emotional pain over having to leave your stuff. This is what the Bible says his reaction was. Because, and Jesus looks this guy in the eye. This is the only time we have recorded in the Gospels that Jesus looked somebody in the eye and said, follow me. And they're like, I can't. I already have a king. And it's my stuff. And you see here we learned that this young man, for all of his zeal, he doesn't love God. He's leveraging God. He thinks that all of the wealth and everything that is accumulated in life is a direct result of the, of the blessing and the approval of God. That was strong in the culture because there are texts in the Old Testament where God is quite literally promising to his children in the ancient world, listen, trust me and follow me and I will care for you and provide for you and you'll be blessed. But if you turn to these other gods that these other nations are following, you'll be cursed. And so using that language, they're like, well, this guy's doing well, they ex- they, they expect, of course, that this is the blessing of God. This is what he thinks. Verses 23 and 24, we get that familiar language of Jesus saying, turning to his disciples after this all happens. And uh, he says, it's easier for a rich person to go through the eye of a needle than to enter the kingdom of God because of this great temptation for independence, the great insulating power of wealth, the great ability to sort of just look at your life and say, everything's good, what do I need God for? And the disciples' reaction is, oh my goodness, who then can be saved? Notice the disciples' reaction is not, yeah, Jesus, flog the rich. Notice that's not, as re- they're not their reaction. They, they, they see Jesus say, it's easier to pass through the eye of an eel than for a rich person to go through the kingdom. And they're all like, oh my goodness, well then who can be saved? It's impossible to be saved. Because when your life is doing good and you, you have wealth, That is a sign of the blessing of God. And Jesus is kicking out the ladder. And they're like, well, how can this even be possible? We thought that our stuff and our lifestyle, the the whole vibe, this is like the whole goal, isn't it? To have God's blessing in our life manifest in this way. And in human terms, Jesus says in verse 26, in purely human terms, this is impossible. It's impossible to be saved. It's impossible to not be saved. Just center our lives around our own comfort and live in indifference to God. It's impossible. It's impossible to come to childlike dependence. Oh man, if you have a nice house and you don't like what the temperature is, and you can just go over the wall and yeah, there I'm more comfortable and you've got food and a career and friends and what do you need God for? Things are good. What do we need dependence for? So Jesus gives us some really humbling language here he says actually humanly speaking it's impossible there's got to be sovereign grace he says it's impossible but with God it's, it is possible but with God all things are possible in the immediate context but with God even the rich can come to a childlike dependence on, on me Jesus is saying but that requires the grace of God Of course, there's intellectual assent. Of course, we have agency. Of course, we are responding to the message of the gospel and believing in the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, we are participants in that sense. But we are only participants because by God's grace, he has come towards us and he has made an invitation. This strong sovereignty language provokes us to see That God is not like the nervous kid sitting on the end of the bench in gym class for dodgeball, waiting, saying, oh, please pick me, please pick me. That's not Jesus. Oh, please, please believe in me, please. Sovereign language. It is impossible. We will just live our small, comfortable lives, and we will reject God in favor of being God. That's the OG sin. We'll do it. But with God, all things are possible. And so this teaches us something beautiful about God's nature. It teaches us how God has chosen to exercise his sovereignty. This large, sovereign God. How has he chosen to exercise his sovereignty? He's not distant. He's not inaccessible, though he's transcendent. He's loving and caring and imminent. He's saying to this prideful man, follow me. He's looking him in the eye and he's loving him in the midst of all of his creature comforts and his small little mini messiahs, his puny gods he set up and he's reaching towards him and he's saying, follow me. What has our, how has our sovereign God chosen to walk out of sovereignty in a constant scandalous, undeserved invitation. He is always calling. He is always inviting. He has always been calling. He has always been inviting. Unending invitation to turn to him and to trust him. If you're here today, exploring Christian faith, this is your invitation. God has moved thousands upon thousands upon thousands of things in your life. Of course, you were exercising your agency and living a life thousands upon thousands upon thousands of things occurred, and you're here today hearing this this God of love and of grace, the transcendent God, the creator of the cosmos, but that who is intimate and imminent, and cares about your mundane, this God Jesus will not be added to our life, he will not be added to the rich ruler's life, he will not be added to our life, He's, he's the king, he's central, central to our life worship is all about centering This was the problem. This was the temptation of the rich ruler. It's our temptation to center around the wrong things, to center around good things, to center around good things and make them ultimate things. How dare Jesus ask me to give up my money, my stuff. How dare he he ask me to take a portion of my income and give it to the poor. How dare he ask me to give some of my time, carve out of my life, carve up my busy North American schedule and sit down and have a coffee with somebody else in this room to ask them how they're doing and care about their life. How dare he ask me to live this life of emptiness, of constant self-emptying? How dare he ask me to change my views on the poor? How dare he? I worked hard for my money, they should work hard for theirs. The end, there, theology. How dare he? How dare he ask me to Walk away from my views on sexual ethics. The whole entire culture is screaming a particular thing. How dare he ask me to personally embrace the guidance of his word on sexuality? How dare you? Let's move on to the trajectory. Because the temptation is just live in the comfort and call that comfort God. Let's move on to the trajectory of the disciple. The trajectory is living in congruence with the ways of God. This is what Jesus is after. He's trying to get that rich ruler to be like that little kid. Dependent, trusting, true flourishing, true liberation of the soul. The ways of God is the path to true soul flourishing because we are increasingly aligning ourselves with God's goal of renewal for us in the world. In other words... (laughs) It's it's getting in step with reality. God's definition of reality. Not mine, not yours. God's. It leads to true flourishing. Peter says, Hey, wait a second. After this exchange. Hey, wait a second. We left all our stuff to follow you. What does that mean? What a great question. And I know it's tempting now, you know, to just be like, well, gave up everything, Peter. That's pretty strong. You know, everything. What did you give up, Peter? Peter. You know, you had a couple of uh, busted nets. You're going out on Galilee with three Apache fishing nets. You're floating around in a rinky-dink. I don't know that you can really compare your stuff with what the rich young ruler had to turn flat. Bottom line is, that's all he had. He did leave all his stuff. It wasn't much, but it was all of it. And Jesus says in verse 28, you know, in the new world the disciples, those 12 disciples, are going to have this ruling capacity. Practically and historically speaking, that already happened. Because after the resurrection, the 12 apostles were given authority over the church. So in a sense, they were already executing their theological and judicial and sort of um, gospel-driven judgment. They were exercising that as they were leading the church. So historically speaking, there's an element of the 12 thrones that Jesus referred to that already happened. But if there's some sort of future implications to that, of what that means in the resurrection, Jesus doesn't give any details, so I'm not going to. <laughs> Where the Bible's silent, the preacher should say silent. So let's move on. Let's just sit in that mystery. But Jesus talks about the new world. And I talk about this all the time at Redeemer. The reason it's important to talk about the renewal of all things is this is God's goal in the gospel. There's God's grounds and there's God's goal. Right? This is the apex of the good news. The grounds for the gospel are things like justification by faith, the atonement that happened at the cross, the forgiveness of our sin, the redemption of our sin, the being bought back and being adopted, all of, this, all of these New Testament doctrines that we get, those are the grounds for saying we're children of God. But what's God's goal, though? Well, the goal is the new world that Jesus is talking about here. I'm going to real quick give you the Greek. If you can just go to that screen for me. This Greek word, Jesus says, new world, is palangasia Paligenasiya. And the paleng is, is again. And the Genesia comes from the root word genesis, genesis, which is the beginning or the rebirth. So Jesus says to his disciples, you know, in the again genesis, in the new birth, in the resurrection... Some of your translations say, in the new world or in the resurrection, in the restoring of a thing to its pristine state, in the peak recreation, in the peak humanity. This is where Jesus' head goes, so ours needs to, because this is the good news. Humanity Volume 2 The city that we want, the culture that we want. The unity that we want, the love that we want, the generosity that we want, the, the innovation of the of the human mind and the giftedness and the use of science and the arts and the humanities and all of these things will flourish in culture. This is what we want. This is the good news. This is what humanity cannot produce. This is what the king will when he returns. And this is why you and I slowly but surely live into a congruence of where this is all headed. And that's called discipleship. And that's called living to the glory of the one who saved us in grace. And that's what gives uh, gravitas to the scandal of his forgiveness and the scandal of his grace. That's why it's meaningful. It's because we're like, yes, with joy, I will bend my knee and I will forsake my sin and live to the glory of my Savior because everything's heading someplace. That's why Jesus earlier says to the guy, when he was to talk about good, good stuff, Jesus goes, let's talk about the teleos. Let's talk about where humanity's headed. Let's talk about perfection, humanity perfected. Let's talk about that. He's inviting him and you and I, by extension, to bend our knee and to live into the glorious uh, good news of all this. Right? This striking and emphatic poetry in verse 29. Where he talks about everybody who's left various relationships and homes. is strong, emphatic poetry. Homes and livelihoods. What is Jesus getting at? He says, they'll receive a hundredfold return. This strong poetic language. Well, he obviously doesn't mean a hundred brothers, a hundred sisters, a hundred moms, a hundred dads, a hundred houses. Like, this is not. What he's saying is he's using, he's using a phrase to say... The life that we are living in Kitchener-Waterloo, the things that give us joy, the beautiful things, the pleasurable things, those are just a taste, they're a glimpse, they're a faint residue of the reality of what is to come. It will be a hundredfold. You and I can't conceive of it because you and I, when we enjoy joyous moments in moments of generosity and kindness and care and self-giving love and sacrifice here in Kitchener-Waterloo, not just by Christians, but by God's common grace, lots of people wanting to make this a beautiful city to flourish in, okay? When we experience those things, they're tainted 100% of the time by the things that are constantly occurring that remind us that this beautiful world of ours is broken and that our humanity is broken and that we will not fix it and we need someone wise enough and strong enough and divine enough To be the divine judge who will bring a glorious renewal to all things. And so you see, there is a sense in which all of this has already been set in motion. This whole teleos, the new genesis, it's been set in motion at the incarnation of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas time. And it was detonated at the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate at Easter time. This whole thing is moving now. So the question for you and I, church, is do we desire to live in the congruence of where this is all headed? That is the life of the disciple. Do we desire to put off our old humanity and put on our new humanity and begin to relate to things more and more? Because with joy in our hearts, we're living in a congruence of where everything is headed anyways. To borrow from John Keble, Anglican priest in the 1800s, he says this, when the shore is one at last, who will count the billows past? Just the glorious renewal that takes away all sorrow. And I close with this. Jesus says in verse 30, that many who are first will be last and the last first. We're going to deep dive into that next Sunday because he repeats it in the next chapter. But this cross-shaped, self-giving, emptying love, this life is the counterintuitive pathway to being filled. It is the counterintuitive pathway to joy. It is not fixating on ourselves and our life and our time and our schedule and our wealth. It is getting outside of ourselves and living in generosity. If we believe in the words of Jesus, if we believe in the new creation, it fuels all of this. And so as God's people, may we rejoice in the justification of grace in Christ alone, which is the grounds of the gospel. And may we live, as Jesus put it, into the renewal of all things, the new creation, the goal of this gospel. Let's pray.